So Josh, welcome to the show. Josh, I know that from in, in your book that you served on a submarine. And I, I really want to know, I'm fascinated by it. How did you end up there? How did you end up on a submarine? Well, I certainly didn't end up there from the time I was two years old walking around the house saying I want to be on a submarine when I grow up. Um, we all grow up a little bit differently. Um, as I grew up um, in a small little farm town, um, I learned those core values and those, those elements that were instilled in me as a child that I carry today. Um, and, and one of those things I think that influenced me along the way, my father was in the United States Navy, and, and I had admired my father, and I still do. Um, and in, I think that, you know, as a young man growing up, uh, as much conflict as you have with them, as, as, much, uh, as much love as you have with them, there's that side that says, you know, I'm going to follow my father's footsteps. I wasn't the academic. I wasn't uh, interested in academia after high school. And there was a, uh, there was a conflict called Vietnam going on at that, at that particular time. And uh, so I felt a desire and a pull to, to serve my country and, and specifically in the United States Navy. What brought me to a submarine Navy was actually the recruiter that I was impressed with. He happened to uh, be someone who was on a submarine at the time. And I had a childhood friend who was a little bit older than I, and uh, I admired him as well. And he had taken that path, add those things, three things together, and lickety split them on a United States submarine. Uh, and it struck me in, in reading your story about being on a sub was that you learned a lot about teamwork. You, you, you emphasize the fact that you have to be able to, in an instant, be able to drop in and do somebody else's job that not just the safety, but the life of your, your, your comrades, your, your, your colleagues, depends on, on you and the team around you and vice versa. But it also struck me that that wasn't necessarily evident to you until you worked as a sales manager in a company called Prudential which I understand is an insurance company. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about that, that evolution, obviously after you left the, the, the Navy and you joined the, the, the Prudential. Tell us that story uh, about your time there. Well, in fact, um, I did learn that in, in the United States Navy, in the submarine service. You don't know that going in, but it, it becomes very apparent to become qualified on, a, on that submarine as, you've, you, as you have expressed. Um, there is a... There's a tremendous amount of training and development that goes on to, to sustain that level of confidence from your, as you put it, your shipmates, your comrades. Those that around you must have the utmost confidence in you, and that must be displayed through a rigorous qualification program. Uh, they must see you fail, and, and when you fail, they, they must see how you can handle that uh, so that they gain confidence in you. That's, it's a rigorous process. It lasts sometimes years uh, before one is actually qualified and wears the badge of a, of a United States submarine sailor. Uh, fast forward, moving, what I didn't realize was, was how transferable that, that is in the corporate world, in the world of selling, in the world of developing a sales team. And that's what you're alluding to, as I write in the book, what I learned uh, in, in evolving into leading a team in, in sales uh, through, the, through the insurance company, the Prudential that I worked for, um, going from an individual insurance agent to leading a sales team, I, I struck some similarities uh, between my experience in the United States Navy 
and developing and growing that sales team. What I found is that you can't be the super salesperson. The all you got to do, I was told, all you got to do, Josh, is, uh, is show these folks what you do and you too will be successful. And, and in fact, that's not true. <laughs> it's not true just to show someone if we're, the, if we're that easy, then everyone would be a success in the world of management and leading sales teams. In fact, what I learned is that they have to have confidence in you. You must have confidence in them. And, and throughout that process, there's a value in, in development. And, and the, the secret to that is allowing someone to fail without having to feel as though you've got to rush in and rescue them all the time or provide for them um, so that they can succeed. It's, it's, a, it's a crucible, as it were. And, and the, the similarities from my experience in the United States Submarine Navy and, and that growth experience there was evident. It was truly a different core competency, uh, a different role. But the elements, those, those core development elements and, and uh, methodologies were so very similar. It just struck. So a sales manager might say to that, uh, that, well, look, I can't afford to be letting my salespeople fail in the middle of a deal. But I guess that's also like saying, well, I can't afford to let my, uh, my, my, my Navy uh, personnel fail in the middle of combat. It's what you're saying is that you simulate failure, that you, you practice failure, that you create the conditions in which you can fail in a safe environment, not in the real environment. That's where development comes in. And until you are confident and qualified in, 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 in selling, in that, in that role of selling, and you're, you're doing the behaviors without thinking, you own what you're doing, uh, until that happens, then the sales manager feels as though, most sales managers feel, feel as though they, they need the sale more than they need to watch you fail at that sale. Where in fact, um, in a controlled environment, you must experience that time. And again, you're not going to get them all. You're not going to sell everything. And from the manager's perspective, that experience must be, must be had. So the question is, do we, do we want to watch that failure literally and lose the dollars in the, in the revenue by allowing that failure to happen out in the field all the time? Or do we want to accelerate that and cause that failure purposely in a controlled environment more rapidly such that that confidence can be accelerated, that that building of confidence can be accelerated in, in a controlled environment, in a training room, in a role play uh, situation. And also while they're in the field, to a, when we do allow that failure to happen, that it's a learning experience and there's a coach, i.e. the sales manager, a well-developed coach to be able to pull those lessons and reflect back upon it. You see, the goal is for, for that person, that individual to be able to sell and sell effectively. And, and sometimes that sale doesn't come through. If, if every sale was made, they wouldn't need salespeople. You would point, click and buy everything where in fact, uh, skilled and qualified professional salespeople know that you're not going to get every one of those, but there's a lesson to be learned on every single one that you can pull forward. If that template isn't built in and that coaching isn't done effectively, then that salesperson does not know how to reflect upon that failure and grow from it. So it's essential to allow that failure to happen, but it's essential to accelerate that experience and it's so valuable to be able to do it in a controlled environment. But as you're telling me this, I'm reflecting on 
the corporate world where they get people together for training, maybe at some sales kickoff event or maybe for a two-day boot camp once a year. How do you replicate or even can you, can you replicate that process you're talking about in that context of boot camp? Well, boot camps are effective uh, for, for purpose and they're designed for a purpose, but they are not designed as the only step in a stairway to sustainable behavioral change of growth. That, think of a, a, of a training event. We've got to ch think of those events that sometimes are very helpful as a step on that staircase. It's a part of the process, but stand alone, it won't allow you to reach the top. You've got to take, you've got to plan for what am I going to do with that after that event? What happens after that event is, is equally as important as the event itself. In fact, we know that there's a, a 90, 10 rule, 10, only 10% of, of what you will attain, hear, see, experience in a training event will be there 90 days later. Wow. So fast forward 90 days, you'll probably retain about 10% of what you saw if you don't do anything with it beyond that training event. So think of that event as, as the initial kickoff, the event for the purpose of knowledge transfer. So if we could transfer some knowledge in that particular event, then the question is, how do we take it from the knowledge transfer to a sustainable behavioral change. And there's steps along the way that must be planned before the event to make sure that that sustainable behavioral change happens and we get the results that we want. And is that the role of the sales manager? Is it the role of sales enablement? Where does that reside with? Who does that reside with? It, it res resides squarely in leadership's office. So, what I mean by that is, yes, the sales manager has a piece of that. That sales manager must be an effective coach. If we don't train and develop that sales manager to be an effective coach, then we can't rely upon that person or, or, or that next step of, of adaptation and application and skill building to happen such that that individual grows and gets to that process. It won't be there. Uh, it'll happen in some if they have the ability, but... 90% of the folks that go through it won't have the ability to learn from that experience without a qualified coach. So the sales manager's role, the specific supervisor sales manager's role goes into training and coaching role. And they must be effective coaches, otherwise they're useless. They'll tend to rescue the sale again and, and, and go back to the same behavior that the salesperson was doing before, which is as long as I have Paul Lonigan, my sales manager with me, he'll close sales for me. And so you've worked with lots and lots of sales managers. And I'm wondering, is, is there a sense that when managers rescue their, their people, that in essence, one, they're setting up a dependency on them, but at some psychological level, is that what they're trying to do? Because they, it's, it's an ego stroke. If, if my people are, are dependent on me and I can come in then and be the hero and rescue the deal at the final hour, that somehow or another is that's that's how I get my my, my strokes. First of all, is that is that a common? And if it is, how do you effectively deal with it? I don't know that I would call it common, but it is one of the things that we see in sales managers who are not in there for the right reason. A sales manager 
must want and need to grow in the sales manager's role as, a, as opposed to continue the growth as a salesperson in the accolades that they receive from a salesperson. More often than not, as you know, as we all know, that sales managers are typically selected uh, based upon their performance in their sales role. So if they're high performers in the sales role, here comes the brass ring, they grab the brass ring, you too, Josh, you can be a sales manager as, as I took that brass ring. And, and early on, not knowing how to manage, how to coach, how to, how to supervise, how to train, how to mentor that activity, I always fell back upon early on, I would fall back upon what I was confident in, and that was closing sales. That's what I, that's what I did best, and, and when others weren't closing those sales, I needed to fall back on that, which I learned, which was closing sales. And that made me not only fulfilled, but it made me, uh, it didn't make me, but it was the only tool that I had in my box. It was the only competency I could rely on until I learned and began to develop in the other competencies necessary to be that sales manager. I couldn't switch. I had no place to go. There were no skills. There were no competencies. So I was doomed in that particular role. So, so what, what I see in most sales managers who who enact upon that, who, who play that role, it's because they don't have competencies and skills in the manager's role and they burn out because you cannot do it for others forever. So what was your turning point then where you realized that that approach you were taking at Prudential just wasn't effective for you? What was it that, what was the awakening and what steps did you take? Tell me a little bit about that journey. Well, I made all the mistakes that most salespeople or sales managers have, have made out there early in their career. If there's one to be made, I promise I made it. Along that first six months, I took a, a less than mediocre sales team from less than mediocre directly to the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the barrel. I, I did it um, because I made all of those mistakes. Uh, wise enough and confident enough to realize that those mistakes, there was a lesson to be learned from those mistakes. And that's where I drew upon my experience in the United States Navy. I learned from that controlled experience. Unfortunately, in that, that the, the early experience as a sales manager, it wasn't controlled. It was, it was out of control. And things were going south, and I knew I needed to do something. And all I had to go back upon was either be super salesperson, which I knew I couldn't sustain for life, um, and, and that which I experienced prior to being a successful salesperson, and that was a successful submarine sailor in the United States Navy, and how did I get the confidence to lead a team there? And, and those experiences pulled forward, and the one experience was get quality, quality raw material in the room. So make sure that what I was hiring was quality material. Secondly, I needed to shift and become better at be, being a coach, at being a leader, uh, the best, the best thing that I learned was I needed those leadership skills to pull forward from that time that I served in the service in the United States Navy and pull upon that leadership as opposed to a performer. I needed to be a leader. And those two things put together, I changed my behavior. I stopped doing it for them and realized I had a short period of time to build a team such that they could do it for themselves and I could get that productivity through them, not from them. You talk in your book as well about attitude not being enough. And when I read that first, it, it, there was a kind of a, 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 a slight conflict, and maybe conflict's not the right word, but it conflicted with that phrase that hire for attitude. And then you said, 
uh, attitude's not enough. So I, I guess you are hiring for attitude, but there's more. Maybe you could talk to me about that. Yes, it's the behavior attitude technique triangle that we train so many times that everyone's looking for the confident attitude. And, and that's very important. I did the same thing when I hired that sales team um, at the Prudential many years ago. I first needed that core raw material, which is attitudinal base. We need self-confidence and a high degree of self-esteem. So you hire for those things and you look for the key performance indicators in the past such that you're hiring someone who has drive, who has ambition, who has a high self-esteem, those core things that will bring them, bring them through those multiple failure and rejection points that they're going to experience when they're a salesperson. So you, you hire someone who can sustain that and who has had those and can prove it with the behaviors in the past. But that standalone won't, won't make them successful. Some of them will do well in spite of what you do, some of them won't do well in spite of what you do. So we, we have to look for that, that movable middle, the 80% the of those that we do have the opportunity to move. So if we hire for those core attitudinal competencies, we have got to pay attention to the behavior and the technique. So we've got to, from a technique standpoint, we've got to give them a process that they can own and reflect back upon for support when I'm not with them. When someone else is not with them, showing them and coaching them and training them, they have to have standards for which they can call upon and pull the tools out of their tool bag and have the confidence in those tools to use those so that when they, when they get off track, they can reset themselves. And that's our process. The, the Sandler methodology is that track. It's not something we do to people. It's something we do to ourselves. That, that submarine, that methodology, is something to hold ourselves true so that we don't misbehave and get off track. Now, the behavior side of the piece says, what are my goals? What is my plan? And what are the actions that I have to take on a regular daily basis, on a, on a daily basis to achieve those goals? And if you don't have a plan, along with that good technique and those skills that are over there, and the drive and the ambitional uh, attitudes and the self-confidence, if you don't have all three, it's a three-legged stool and it's going to fall if one of the legs is missing. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense what you're saying. And for managers who are watching this um, and they're thinking, okay, Josh, you, you, you absolutely make perfect sense. What steps do they have to go through? Because I know in the book you talk about the four steps. This is a process. It's not, I'm not going to tell them what to do. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about those four steps that people have to go through in order to climb those steps and get to the promised land. Well, the four steps I, I believe you're talking about is that it, what I call the cash formula to, to success. There, we always start out with a, with a goal. So if a manager has a goal and it's not being achieved, or they have a goal and it's yet to be achieved, what that says is there's a result that we're looking for and we start with the end in mind. What is the result we're looking for? When we're all done, when, we're, when we have arrived at that platform, at that next level, what does it look like? And then we begin to back into that. If we're to achieve something different than we're achieving today, we've got to do something different towards achieving that. We know that the, the definition of insanity is to continue to do the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. So we, we have to do things differently, which is we have to make different habits. We, we have to make a different behavior and, and do things differently to get there. So the process to get that sustainable behavioral change 
is, is this adult learning model. And the first is knowledge transfer. We've got to learn something or know something about something that we want to achieve. And that's the knowledge piece of it. It's the boot camp, as, as we discussed earlier. Um, it's, the, it's the knowledge transfer. It sets the stage or the foundation for building upon those, that, that path and that journey for a different result. So we begin to learn. And that learning starts with knowledge transfer. And it very quickly goes to application. From knowledge to application, that's the K and the A part. Knowledge, we learn something, then we go apply it. Then we come back when it works or does not work, and we relook at what we learned. And, and we reflect upon that, because now we know what we should be doing, we know what should be happening, and it's not happening. We're a re reflection point. We solidify the learning, and we go back into the cycle and reapply it. So it's applying, adapting, adding additional knowledge, that cycle that happens from knowledge to application begins to work. And it begins to, we begin to adapt that maybe skill, that knowledge in different situations. And as we begin to do that, and we refine it, that it works, we move to the second or the third block, which is skills. That's when skills happen. They happen when we begin to apply it in different ways and it begins to work. When that works, we build skills, and the more skills that we build, the more confidence that we build. We get good at what we do, we begin to gain confidence, which feeds that attitudinal side and allows us to replace the habits, those old habits that got us those old results, with new behaviors and new habits that will point towards the new results. Once we release those, once we release those old habits, and we form those new habits with that confidence and that newfound knowledge, then we get, we get to get, uh, approach that new result that we're looking for. We call that going from knowing to owning it. When you know it, that's one thing. But when you own it, you're not even thinking about it. You're just automated. You're on, you're on point all the time. We don't think about it until afterwards. And then we can peel the onion back. And we can reflect upon what we actually did and build moving forward. It sounds to me from what you're saying that at the core of this process, there is always some form of meaningful failure experience. Now, and and I, I experienced this myself, actually. It was a, a few years ago, I got a present of a, a flying lesson, just a, an hour up in the sky. And it, it was great fun, but and it was so much fun when we landed. I said to the pilot, I said, you know, how long would it take me to get my pilot's license? He says, minimum 40 hours, but you're probably looking at something like 60, maybe to 80 hours of flying. I said, that sounds like a lot because my father-in-law, who'd also taken flying lessons, had said that he was able to take off and land after, you know, four or five lessons. And the pilot just smiled and he said, yeah, he says, but that's the easy bit. He says, once we get you taking off and landing, he says, then I'm going to take you 10,000 feet up in the air. I'm going to hand the stick to you and I'm going to cut the engine. And, and it was that creation of that meaningful failure experience. Here, here's a real world scenario. Deal with it. And, and, and all the PowerPoints and all the books and all the videos I watch can't prepare me for that experience. I need to do it in a safe environment where there's somebody there to catch me. 
and, and also not make me feel really stupid about myself so that I no, can exactly. actually exhilarate it and not put off by the experience. Yeah, not only does it make sense, it's exactly what, what, what happens in a controlled environment, in a, in a professional training environment, where we take that knowledge. When we first apply it, we have to apply it in a safe environment to, to establish boundaries, the boundaries of what works and what looks like success and the, and the other boundary of what, what looks like failure so that we know the lane that we've got to be driving and to be safe and make sure that we, we're taking all of the opportunities for success but we're limiting the downside of failure. And we learn that first by applying it in a safe environment. We see, what's, we see what success looks like by demonstration, uh, maybe by your, your, your trainer, your instructor, your, your coach. That's the person who will show you what that looks like. Maybe in that controlled environment that they show you, maybe in the field, they'll actually show you what that experience looks like in a safe environment because there's no risk of you failing at that particular point. And the only thing that you can fail at that is fail to, to actually do, do the exercise. So we do it in an exercise environment. When, when we're building skills, when that exercise builds skills, it actually is done active in the field, but it doesn't mean that you're alone. You see, when you're learning to fly, that instructor's sitting in the seat right next to you. So there's some exhilaration, there's some fear, there's some excitement, but there's also a safety net that that instructor will recover that airplane if it gets into a disaster or a catastrophic mode. So we don't want that experience to be catastrophic, but we do want to allow that failure to happen. So just the same, when we take a salesperson and we put them into the field, what we don't want to do is rescue them at the first sign that they're going down the wrong path. They need to explore that. In fact, those first sales opportunities that they have, don't need to be with the highest risk and highest opportunity that we have for a sale for the organization. We put them in those controlled environments with a coach, with a mentor to make sure that they're allowed to fail. They can feel those boundaries that were set in that controlled environment in the real environment. Now they begin to own them. That's where the real skill is being built in that field environment when they're behind the stick, as you would say. They're in the plane, they hold the stick, they're driving, but there's an instructor, or in this case, a sales manager, a coach, that is in the back, allowing them to experience those risky environments, that, that failure, to allow them to touch it, to feel the boundaries of that failure, but not letting cat catastrophe happen. Okay, so let's say I'm a sales manager, and I absolutely 100% buy what you're telling me, and I've got a rep who- That's rare, by the way. What? Is that we have a sales manager that's going to 100% buy what I'm telling them right off the bat. It is rare, but we'll, we'll, we'll go that way. Okay, they're out there. <laughs> and they've got a rep who they, they want to do a ride along, they want to, do, to, 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 to coach, but they're going to have to allow them to fail. However, I do not, as that sales manager, I do not want to risk this deal. I, I do not want to screw it up because I have to report to somebody too. And it's, 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 it's my revenue. So are there any tips you would have for me as that manager, whereby I can let the rep prepare for failure, but without jeopardizing the deal. And I'm thinking in terms of what, how can I prepare before a meeting, for example, with a prospect, with my rep? How can I 
um, I don't want to not not rescue, but maybe that there's some team play where if the rep is floundering and they feel the need me to step in, but they're inviting me to, or, or would you even recommend that approach at all? You can, uh, but all of this is pre-call planning. Okay. Um, so in the world of training and developing and coaching that, that individual, we wouldn't throw them into that environment and wait till failure happens to rescue them. That's, very, that's a wrong approach. I'll be right behind you. There's always pre-flight in, in a flight and there's a pre-plan for a sales call. So in the pre-planning session, we plan for how far that salesperson is expected and prepare, not just plan, but prepare them for bringing that opportunity to a particular point and handing it off. So if it's a pre-call planning session, then we don't, we don't put them in a, in a situation to where we know they've never experienced that before. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be catastrophe if they go there. So good pre-call planning allows those stages to, uh, to happen in a pre-prepared fashion so that we can allow that salesperson to take it to some point, hand it off, and the sales manager goes from coach to mentor in that particular role and mentors the behavior from that point and beyond. There's two different hats that the sales manager is wearing, uh, three in this particular instance. One is the trainer, and that's the pre-call plan. That, you're in trainer mode and you're, you're preparing for them. If you don't believe that they're prepared to take it to that particular level, then you should train them to do that and prepare them in that control environment to do it. And then you'll coach them. You're the coach on that role to that point. They know the coach is there. You'll protect them. If it, if it happens to go south, you can re rescue them, but they're prepared to take it to some particular point. And then at that point, you become the mentor and you're mentoring the behavior from that point forward that they need to remember. So what's equally important, Paul, in this situation is not only the pre-call planning and preparation, but the post-call debrief. After that sales call, you must spend an equal amount of time peeling the onion back and learning from that experience. What did they learn from the part that they played? And equally, what did they learn from the part that you played? So not only can they gain confidence in the skills that they particularly applied, and they can begin learning about the new skills that they'll be expected to apply as they learn and grow. So, Josh, one of the things I see, again, in large corporates is where they will structure their team and they will give more junior reps, small accounts, and then it goes up, it's tiered, and they have all sorts of different names. And as they get more experienced, they, they climb that and, and, and get bigger and bigger opportunities. However, what strikes me is, and they do that, I should say, so that people can fail on small deals, and it doesn't really impact the company all that much, and they'll bring in enough to justify the process. But what I don't see them do is do exactly what you said. I don't see the manager spend time on the pre-call planning and the post-call planning because they pro and this is just a guess, they probably look at the deal size the reps are bringing in and say, it's not worth my time to spend time doing pre-call planning and post-call uh, debrief on small deals because they're, they're just looking at revenue and they're not thinking development. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you've seen? And if so, what message would you have? Well, yes, you see it all the time. 
Um, and, and oftentimes when we see that, it's very short-sighted as, as we know, because uh, we're thinking and working on the things as managers of urgent. And when I hear things like, but I need the revenue, that's urgent. And we're neglecting the things that are important, which is the ongoing sustainable revenue and how we're going to attain that after I'm gone and after I'm expecting that this person graduates from, from the junior accounts to the mid accounts and the senior accounts, there's a growth pattern that, that will happen. The reason that happens is because typically a, a corporation, um, well, not typically, but oftentimes they don't start with the priority when they apply training and development. And that's with the managers first. So I find that they lack the confidence because the management skills necessary to be able to enact upon not only the supervisor skill that they spend 45% of their time in, but the coaching skills, the mentoring skills, and the training skills that are necessary to grow an organization. Getting a result is much easier than growing the organization to get results, but the one that's more sustainable is growing the organization to get those results. Because at some point in time, um, those that are at the higher levels of skills will leave you. They will go. They will retire. They will go to another firm. They will get hit by a bus. They will leave the organization. Nothing is forever. So the question is, how much are we wasting on the turnover of the juniors and what that cost us to just hire them, turn them over, and, and only pay attention to those that survive? How much does it, is that costing us as opposed to applying the right development to those stages such that we get a higher percentage of growth. I think there's also another imperative that if you look at that generation or generations and millennials is that they're actually hungry for development. And so you're pushing against an open door if it's done well. But I think what they resist is the rack them and stack them form of training and I, and I, and I, I'm, yes, they're hungry for development, but I also think they need that attention from a learning oriented development oriented manager. So it's, it's not just about the numbers. It's if I want to retain great staff. I think I got to do it too. Well, you do because at some point um, they'll get bored. Uh, highly, highly qualified um, young talent that comes out of, out of the university or or begins to enter the workforce as it were they are looking for something beyond the experience that they've had and that's the practical application of what they learn how do how do i do that they didn't get that in college they didn't get that in university they didn't even get it in technical school the practical application requires that they have a mentor and a coach next to them not just a supervisor and they're seeking that if you've got someone who has the core competency of ambition and drive and and they have a desire and a passion to succeed if they don't feel that success moving forward or don't see the opportunity they will move on even if they're succeeding financially they can get bored with that if they're not growing and developing the the most successful salespeople in the world is always they are always seeking that next level that they're they can get through development they're always seeking that next level because they know that what comes as a big gift today will go away tomorrow and unless they get to the the next level of development competition is right on their tail they desire it 
they're ambitious, they're achievers, and achievement comes through development, and they're hungry for it. So if you don't feed that hunger as well, you're going to lose them. Josh, I could listen to you all day. Your energy is infectious. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I wanted to get to a couple of quick final questions for you. Uh, I'm, I'm one, one is connected with what you just said a moment ago about reps being ambitious and having that drive and hunger. Well, you've managed a lot of reps and you've worked with thousands of reps in your time. Not everybody has that drive and hunger. So how do you go about distinguishing, distinguishing between those reps who have the raw material and are worth the investment in time and those who you feel off the bat are never really going to make the grade? Have you any advice on how you go about making that distinction? Well, I, I learned from uh, someone very long ago. It's it's uh, you really you really should never say never or ever say ever because those are too risky. So, uh, the, the issue is how much do you have to invest, and that's not just financially. But if you're going to hire someone, you first have to determine how much you're willing to invest. If someone has low ambition, drive, desire, commitment. Um, they can attain those things, but are you willing to invest in, in that much to get that value out of them, which could be very time consuming and, and, and it could be a long tail on that dragon. And it, you may not be willing or able to invest all of those dollars and resources in, in growing someone's ambition and drive. It can be done, but what are you willing to work with? What are the, the standards that you, you must have when you're looking for and you're recruiting and you're interviewing and you're going through your hiring process, that's part of the process and the manager's responsibility to, number one, know exactly what you're getting. Assessment tools help those areas. Make sure they're behavioral-based assessments that measure the competencies at the level that you're looking for. Set those standards. Allow it to be looked at objectively so that you don't fall in love with that person before you can look at the raw material objectively because we can't make something out of everyone we can make some things out of some people. So set those standards from the beginning. Use objective um, assessment tools to help you along the way. Panel interviews so you're not so emotionally invested. Remember, we make decisions emotionally. We only justify them intellectually. And if you're emotionally connected to that, that person that you're hiring, you'll tend to overlook those core competencies necessary for you to build upon. So that's where that standard is. And your process, as a matter of fact, should be, um, should, should be such that you do not have the opportunity to trump your must-haves with those core competencies. And then always, always select and hire from the best of two, three people as opposed to the one person that we hope makes the grade. So always have a pool to select from. Makes sense. It's like another funnel. Josh, you've been a fantastic guest today. Josh Seibert, winning from failing. I'm guessing this is on Amazon? It is. Fantastic. And it's available today. Is it downloadable on Kindle? It is. Fantastic. Definitely a fantastic read. I, I was glued. In fact, it was my son read it first. And he called me the next day and he says, Daddy, he says, I couldn't put this down. I went to sleep last night with it on my chest and I started reading it when I woke up. So I thought, I've got to read this book. And he wasn't wrong it really, from a manager's perspective. But I also think from a rep's perspective, every rep should read this uh, to get a better handle on 
what process they're going to have to go through to achieve great success. So my sincere thanks for your time, your insight, your experience today. If people want to get in contact with you, Josh, how can they do that? Well, the best way is through the World Wide Web, the internet. My website is training.sandler.com. That's www.training.sandler.com. And they can find me there, find out all about us right there. Fantastic. Well, I'll put those details in the video so people will have that there too. Josh, thank you again. It's been fantastic. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Have a great day.